Hi everyone, I'm Lockie Mansell. Thanks for downloading the Checkered Flag Chat podcast. This week we're discussing the link between motorsport and road safety. It's a topic I'm passionate about, and to help me discuss it in detail, I'm pleased to welcome motorsport competitor and driving instructor Daniel Flanagan. Now, Daniel is the most capped driver in the Wakefield 300. Not only that, he's also been the winner of an endurance race at Bathurst in a V8 Holden. But the thing that really makes Daniel stand out is that he's taken his love of driving and used it to make a positive difference to society. If you live in Canberra and you've got your driver's license recently, there's a good chance you've been a student of Daniel's fifth gear motoring driver training organisation. You might have learned on one of his Mini Coopers. Daniel is passionate about making our roads safer, and in the podcast we discussed the value of defensive driver training in addition to the basic licensing process. We also tackled the topic of motorsport participation and its benefits for driver perception and awareness. So, let's dive into the road safety discussion with Daniel Flanagan here on Checkered Flag Chat. Great to have Daniel Flanagan as my guest on this episode of Checkered Flag Chat. And Daniel has been around in the motorsport and motoring industry for quite some time now. And Daniel, I believe that your involvement in the motorsport industry actually started when you were working as a mechanic for the Cedars racing team. Yeah, that, that's right, Lockie. That's where I, um, uh, I was always on the outer edge uh, with motorsport and trying to sort of infiltrate, um, I guess, the, the motorsport circles and, and get in and, and, and learn from people. Um, so as, as part of that, I did my Diploma of Motorsport Engineering down in Wodonga. And then I was lucky to work for a few teams, um, in, including Brad Jones. And then, yeah, found, found my way to the Cedars Racing Team, which was, uh, which was a fantastic experience. Learned a lot um, from them and great to work for what was at the time a, a small family team. And, of course, they've grown over time now to, to running many cars in many categories. It was great. For yourself, was the goal always to become a racing driver or were you happy to be involved in the, the mechanical and the off-track aspects of the sport? No, mate, my, my goal was to become a, a, a racing driver. Um, I, I started quite quite late, though. Um, I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of people in the same boat. Uh, came from a, a very uh, sort of humble family life when we were younger and uh, I, I was part of a large family that was four kids and quite often just dad working. So um, there wasn't huge amounts of income and uh, that, that sort of meant that things weren't able to, uh, you know, I obviously couldn't, there wasn't money for things like go-karting and stuff. So I used to help friends out with go-karts, was always building uh, billy carts and trying to make my bike go faster, <laughs> doing all of those sorts of things. And then um, once, I, once I left school and started working, I actually bought, uh, bought my first house um, when I was uh, when I was 21, and then um, just worked a lot of overtime. I was a single guy, you know, and and then I bought a go kart, and I didn't actually start racing until I was 20, 22 or 23. So I bloomed very late, mate, very late. And it was only that I was financially able to do it myself that I that I then made the commitment to do it. Um, as you know, if you if you can't put a couple of dollars together, it makes it very difficult then to be able to go and do anything in motorsport. 
you went down the sensible route, getting yourself into the property market before going and playing with race cars. So I think um, maybe not quite the cool thing to do at your age, but definitely something that pays dividends in the long term. But uh, talk to me about your first foray into motorsport because uh, these days, of course, we have the Hyundai XL series, which is a very popular entry-level point into circuit racing for cars. But you started off in a different type of Hyundai, didn't you? Yeah, I did. And at the time, um, it was the production touring cars, the, the Australian production touring car championship that was being run under the AMRS. And uh, I sat down and I analysed the rules. And, you know, I was, I was 26 years of age and uh, I had to go and find a car that was going to be competitive. And I had my set, sight set on not so much an outright win because, you know, there was, there was the SAE team from Newcastle that was running BMW uh, 130Ms and you know we knew that we were never going to have a car that was or a budget that was going to be able to compete with that so we set our sights on class C and uh, looking at the cars in class C there was a lot of four-cylinder cars I did my research and it was really based on power to weight ratio and we stumbled across the Hyundai Sonata that actually fell into that class based on its power to weight ratio and I guess where the advantage was with that car was that it was a 2.5 litre V6 and so up against the likes of Nissan Pulsars and Proton Satrias um, and, uh, you know, uh, other cars that were in the class at the time. The V6 actually gave me the advantage down the straights. Um, the only problem there was I was carrying an extra three or 400 kilos over the other cars. Uh, so uh, stopping the car and actually getting the, the thing to turn was, uh, <laughs> was another challenge altogether. And they actually... They tagged the car because we painted it bright yellow. They tagged it the Korean taxi, <laughs> and it was known at the time um, as the as the Korean taxi. And and we went out and uh, yeah, we we debuted the car in two thousand and six for the last uh, couple of rounds. Picked up a, a round win and uh, a couple of podium finishes there. And I think that really shaped things for the next year in two thousand and seven. Um, we we sort of went around to a few local businesses here in Canberra and we, we got good year auto care Philip on board. Alan and his wife were more than happy to give us that support. And it gave us a little bit of money, not, not, not huge amounts. Um, it gave us a little bit of money to, to go out and compete in 2007. And, you know, mate, we did that championship around Australia. We went to Queensland and we went to Melbourne and we slept in the back of the ute and you know, you, you, you took your two-minute noodles and your, your eight two-minute noodles at the track. You had a set of tyres to last you all season, those sorts of things. But uh, we were able to win the championship that year. So that was, that was pretty special. Yeah, pretty special. In your first full year of circuit racing, pretty impressive achievement. And, uh, of course, you would go on to race a variety of different production-based vehicles. Um, your brother, James Flanagan, was your co-driver for quite a few of the endurance events. Um, Shane Tanner, another... Canberra-based driver, he co-drove with you in some events as well. And one of the events that you became synonymous with was the uh, the 300-kilometre endurance races at Wakefield Park, the, uh, the Wakefield 300s, which started back in 2008. And I always remind people every time the Wakefield 300 comes around that you're the most capped driver in that event. You've had more starts than anybody else and uh, you've driven a wide variety of different types of cars in the 300s as well. What have you always enjoyed about those production car and endurance styles of events? Yeah, it was um, obviously that doing the sprint races in the late 2000s 
there, it, it kind of left me wanting a little bit more. You know, winning a championship so so quickly um, made me sort of search for other challenges. And part of that was the 300s. And I know when, when the concept came about and they rolled it out in 2008, Shane and I looked at it very closely. And, uh, you know, something we were really excited to get into. He had the Proton Satria. And, uh, and it, it, for us, it just seemed to be the right car. We knew we weren't going to be outright contenders based on lap speed, um, but certainly very reliable car, light on fuel, light on tyres. And, um, yeah, I guess it was about spending more time behind the steering wheel, um, but without, without spending a fortune as well. And I think that's what was really key there with, those, with the early days of the Wakefield 300. You could go and, and, and run the weekend and finish inside the top 15 and have a great weekend, feel very satisfied, but without, uh, without going bankrupt. And uh, yeah, it was really cool. They were, they were really, really good days um, with the 300. And as you said, I've competed in all of them. Um, I, I just wish we, we had some better results there, particularly, you know, more so in the last sort of five or six years. Didn't always go our way, but um, yeah, de definitely brilliant race and a brilliant concept. And the team at Wakefield Park, yourself included, of course, in those early days, really did a lot to get that event off the ground. And it is a great event. One of the things about the Wakefield 300 is that it has a very diverse lineup of cars that compete in those events, everything from turbocharged Mazda MX-5s and Lotuses that compete at the front of the field all the way back to Hyundai XLs and Nissan Pulsars and Daewoo Lanoses that you find running around in the lower divisions. From a driver's perspective, what is the, the key to, I suppose, traffic management in those sorts of events where you've got all different types of cars travelling at all different speeds? Yeah, that's that's an interesting one, and, and I've been on I've been on both ends of that scale, um, Lockie, as you know, having driven. I, I drove a Daewoo as well with James uh, in that two thousand and eight event where we were able to cross centre, and I got to drive two cars. Um, so I, I've been in the lower class, but I've also been up in the top two uh, of the fastest classes as well. And the the challenge is different at both ends. You know, for the for the cars um, that are in the lower classes, you are you know, really enthralled and really wrapped up in your own battles, but you've always got one eye on the mirror as well. And I think um, that uh, that really helps you build your observation and your racecraft because you're always having a look in the mirror while you're braking and before you actually turn at the corner just to see what the faster guys are going to do. And then, of course, conversely, when you are in the faster car, which I, you know, I had the opportunity to do in the later years, um, you, you come up on the slower cars and it's then about making you know, eye contact with them in the mirror, be it the central mirror or the driver's door mirror or whichever side you're passing and making sure that uh, the eye contact is made, that they do see you. And then there's, there's a bit of an understanding there that you don't turn down on each other. It really, the faster cars have to have a little bit of discipline there. They know that they've got the straight line speed. They know that they've got the braking ability. And it really is, you just have to be compliant with one another. But both, I tell you, both have their challenges for sure. You've had plenty of other highlights in your racing career as well. You've driven Aussie racing cars at Bathurst. Um, and speaking of Bathurst, uh, probably the scene of your most memorable racing moment and outright race victory in the production touring car enduro in 2015 aboard the HSV club sport that you still own right through to this day. How special was it chalking up an endurance race victory at Mount Panorama in a V8 Holden. Yeah, 
it's uh, that that you're right, mate. That was that was very special. And even you know, just thinking about it now, I always you, know, you get the hairs standing up on the back of your neck. I, I get that tingle and I get that excitement about it. And uh, it, it's quite funny actually, because a lot of you know, when when you're a kid and you're blowing out your candles on your on your birthday cake and and stuff like that, and you you make those wishes that you hope one day will come true. My wish was always to, um, and I can actually say it now because you know the whole bad luck thing. If you tell people your wishes, they won't come true. Well, mine came true. But uh, when I was a kid, uh, every time I blew out the candles, I was like, I want to win a race at Bathurst. That's all I want to do. And um, not not having really strong, uh, not coming from a wealthy family, but then also not having corporate support made it very difficult. And you know, we we went two events like that just on a mega shoestring mate which which meant that for months either side of that event me personally i went without a lot of things you know there's a lot of sacrifice by the family but to go to bathurst that weekend you know the heavens opened up and uh it was pouring down rain that was I, I remember the start of the race we were going up mountain straight and the spray was was that bad lucky i couldn't see the lights of the car in front of me so i remember just um I pulled over to the right-hand side of Mountain Straight. I found the white line and I, I pretty much just kept the car there and we're sort of wheel spinning up Mountain Straight and over the hump and yeah, it was, it was, it was crazy. But I, I, I guess I was a little bit lucky there in the sense that as part of my job, I spend so much time on a skid pan and uh, I'm quite comfortable in the wet weather and I feel that's probably where I excel the most. I've always done very well in the wet. And uh, I was able to, we, we actually started that race about 22nd or 24th. We had a terrible qualifying session and I was able just to um, make up quite a few spots in the opening laps. And then um, there was a terrible accident in the chase with, um, I think it was Zach Loscalalpo at the time. He rolled his car quite badly. Um, I think that was right. It was Zach, I believe, Lachlan? Zach Loscalalpo, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, had a big, that was, that was a big scary one. And it knocked everyone's confidence around seeing that. That car rolled over several times. And uh, the safety car came out just at the right point. And uh, we were able to duck in, do our compulsory uh, pit stop, which, I, which was a timed pit stop. And we were able to get it back out. I lost a couple of spots in the pits, but we were able to pick them back off. And uh, strategy worked on our side. The, the car was brilliant. And wasn't so much physically draining that race, but a one-hour race around Bathurst in the pouring down rain on what is a semi-slick tyre. It was, uh, yeah, it, it was something uh, something I've never experienced any like have never experienced anything like that before. But to to come away with the win and uh, and I was fighting a good mate of mine, Kevin Herbin, for the race win <laughs> at the time, and I think we we passed each other about four or five times a lap. So you know, it was on was on for young and old we were banging doors and folding our mirrors in and uh, it was it was fantastic and ironically the guys uh, I, I asked the guys on the radio a couple of laps before the end of the race and said hey where are we sitting here you know what what position are we in and they 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 gave me a furphy they they led me up the garden path and said oh mate you you're fighting for the back end of the top 10 which i thought well, this is going to be a fantastic result when in actual fact, we were both fighting for the leads and uh, neither of us knew. Our, our te teams over the radio didn't tell us so that we could stay focused on the job. And then, of course, once I crossed the finish line, uh, Al came over the radio and said, congratulations, mate, you're a Bathurst winner. And yeah, it was pretty emotional. It was pretty emotional.
races in the wet at Bathurst, like you say, maybe not so much physically draining, but certainly very mentally taxing, having to maintain that sort of concentration and keep the car on the racetrack and um, understand where the grip levels are, or in the case of in the wet, are not, um, and making yeah. sure that you don't make any mistakes. Yeah, that was, that, was, that was right. And I remember I got a horrible fright the first time coming down Conrod. Um, unlike a supercar, obviously, we don't, we don't have the downforce. And you quite often see the supercars down the straights will, same with a GT car, you know, they'll, they'll still maintain quite a high top end because as they go faster, the downforce, as you know, uh, pushes them down onto the road. We, we don't have that luxury, unfortunately, with a production car. And I remember being in fifth gear, about 200 k's an hour, came over the, t- <laughs> came over the hump on Conrod and the car jumped sideways. And uh, you, you certainly know you're alive there. I, ha- I had a bit of a moment. And then so each, each lap after that, uh, there was definitely a lift. <laughs> Lockie going over, going over the hump in Conrod while it was still wet. And it's funny because Bathurst, you get rivers running across the road. And so one minute, you know, the car feels quite good and you've got a bit of grip and then you, you drive through a river, which is five or 10 metres wide. And uh, all of a sudden the grip's gone and you're just aquaplaning across the road until the tyres make contact with the bitumen again. So yeah, it, um, it's bloody hairy up there for sure. One thing you mentioned though, was that as part of your professional job, you have had plenty of experience on the skid pan, which is a nice segue into your involvement as a driver trainer actually teaching people how to drive on the road and I believe that it was Derek Crook wasn't it who owns fifth gear motoring in Canberra that you started working for yeah that's right so um they were advertising for a job at the time I was working in the building industry as a cabinet maker um whilst doing the motorsport on the weekends and and things like that and volunteering at um you know, different motorsport events and helping out other friends and stuff. And I saw the job advertised and I applied for it and uh, nine, nine years ago now, I believe, and got into that position. I was fortunate enough, Derek and his, uh, his partner at the time, uh, Derek offered me that, uh, that position. And uh, it's one I took with, with both hands. Um, I, I looked at fifth gear. It had a very, it was very reputable, reputable business here in the ACT. And so I was lucky enough to, to start working for the business and that's where that connection came about and then a couple of years after that the opportunity became available for me to uh to from melissa and i my, my wife and i to be able to buy the business and um it was a big commitment and it was a big jump but uh something we took with both hands and obviously still at it today which is which is good what motivated you to take over the business in was it 2015 i think that you took control of it yeah, so uh, yeah, it was uh, late, very late 2014. You, you're pretty close there. And look, it was there was other people at the time, um, and one of them being uh, you know things like NRMA and and stuff like that. And I think for for me, uh, I didn't want to see the business get commercialised. I wanted it to stay a privately owned business. Um, but I was you know I was in my uh, sort of early to mid 30s, looking for the next challenge in my life, and I looked at it as an opportunity for, for Melissa and I to really grab a hold of the business, take it, you know, grow the business. Um, but it also meant that we, we had more time 
and you know we weren't tied down to a nine to five job and so we had more time for the kids and things like that melissa could spend more time in her photography and there's you know road safety and, and driving is something i'm super passionate about so it just it gave me that opportunity as i said to sort of face more challenges in my life that way and uh, build the business into you know what we've been able to achieve with it today Fifth gear motoring is unique among driving schools in that it's not just a driving school. Yes, you teach people how to drive on the road and enable them to get their driver's licenses, but it's more than that, isn't it? Because it's really a motoring education organisation that also provides things like defensive driving and skid pan training and even race driver training. And uh, one of the other things which I had an opportunity to experience a few weeks ago was you've added a hand control car to your fleet of vehicles to allow people with disabilities to be able to learn how to drive as well. So how many cars do you have now in your fleet in total? We we just bought two more, Lockie. So we now have uh, 11 vehicles on fleet. So, and t- talking to the mini dealer the other day, he said, Daniel, I think you've got the biggest fleet of Mini Coopers in Australia now, <laughs> which, is, which is, yeah, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, so up to 11 now. Um, when we took the business over, we had, uh, we had five cars and we had four full-time staff and, and one part-time staff member. Um, so now we've, we've extended that. We've got 10 full-time instructors Obviously, we've got an admin person as well. Uh, and then uh, we've got a couple of part-timers that, that help us out with running courses and stuff as well. So, yeah, pretty pretty rapid growth. And uh, as you mentioned, the special needs stuff, that was something I was, you know, I've always been really passionate about. When I was younger, uh, my, my best friend uh, had muscular dystrophy and it was someone that I knew since a toddler. And then as, as we grew older, uh, obviously, I saw his you know, his physical ability deteriorate and I saw his body deteriorate. And then unfortunately, uh, when I was um, 18 years of age, he passed away. And so um, being involved with people with disabilities is something I've always been passionate, uh, very passionate about. And uh, I, I feel there's a bit of a gap there in, in the training. A lot of people are recommended to have hand controls put in. They go and spend the money and they're not cheap. You know, like you're talking 10 or $15,000 in some cases. And then uh, these people then attempt to get their license and uh, for whatever reason they can't. Um, so then the money they've spent, of course, has all been in vain. So I, I wanted to sort of uh, fill that void a little bit and, and getting our car on the road was a big part of that. People can come and sample the controls. We can give them formal training um, and certainly get them on the right path to getting their licenses before having to invest that sort of money. So, yeah, but it, it's, it has been difficult, obviously, this year with COVID, but, you know, we expect big growth in, in that sector of the business over the coming years. As mentioned, I had the opportunity to sample that hand control car, took it for a couple of slow laps around Wakefield Park, and uh, I'll tell you what, it's quite a, a brain bender to get your head around driving it because... For somebody who's used to driving with their feet and their hands, the muscle memory, you have to basically throw all of that out the window and constantly tell yourself, no, you're not allowed to use your feet. You've only got your hands to do everything, steering, braking and accelerating. Yeah. And and the other challenge, of course, for, uh, for someone like we work with a lot of paraplegics, for example, and... Um, 
as you found, uh, Lockie, when you push the accelerator with your foot in the car, you've got, you know, 10 to 15 centimetres worth of travel from 0% throttle to 100% throttle. When you start using hand controls, like the combined brake and accelerator, for instance, that's mounted to the bottom of the steering column, you, you've only got about two and a half to three centimetres of movement that you can operate with with your index finger. So it, uh, it, it, it makes it really difficult for people to, to really guess, use those fine motor skills and not use too much throttle. Initially, we see people pull the trigger quite hard like you do on a gun and uh, you know the cars <laughs> then break into wheel spin and you get the stability control kicking in and stuff. Um, and it is, it is a difficult task. But like you said, not using your feet and just primarily using your hands to do your brake, your throttle, your steering, your indicators. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's, it, it really is a skill and uh, you have to take your hat off to people who are forced to drive like that because of their physical condition. Uh, but yeah, they, they really are something remarkable to watch, mate. Talking more generally about teaching people how to drive and guiding them through the process of getting their license, are there any aspects of that process that you focus on in particular to ensure that your students are as safe and as competent as possible before they hit the road? One of the things we see is that statistically, L-platers don't have car accidents. You know, we look at we look at an L plater and they're the most inexperienced driver on the road, but they are such they're, they're so uh, they're represented so lowly in the fatality and accident statistics each year that are released. And a part of that is that a, a learner's attitude is one of absolute safety. You know, they might make mistakes, but they're very cautious the whole time that they drive. Um, one of the key areas I think that we focus on the most there is observation for sure, you know, making sure, and it's the simple fact that if you can identify a hazard very early on, then it gives you more time to be able to respond, you know, and, and deal with that hazard. So that's, that's one of the factors that we really focus on um, in the young drivers. But then also as well, you know, upskilling a driver is one thing, but they have to have a good attitude that, that goes with their driving. And um, quite often you'll see some of, your, some of your drivers that come through, you know, our driving school to get their license um, and stuff. They then, and P-platers, keeping in mind, P-platers are most high risk in the first 12 months. That's when they're likely to have an accident. And it's usually because they're not putting the effort into their driving. And we do tend to see that. Um, they the amount of discipline and, and good attitude they had while they were learning seems to go out the window because now the driving has become second nature to them. And then of course they start to get complacent and things like that. And so we really just want uh, our young drivers to focus on their attitude, to have a good attitude and a safe attitude while they're on the road. Make sure they're always putting, you know, 10 out of 10 effort into their driving, but uh, then also focusing on that observation, like I said, because identifying hazards, first of all, um, gives you plenty of response time. One of the interesting things, and, and this is probably a bit of an insight for people who don't live in the ACT, but the licensing system in the ACT is very different to how it is in a lot of the other states. So typically, if you're in New South Wales or Victoria or Queensland, for example, you might have driving lessons, but then to actually be issued with a license, you have to pass a test which is conducted by the motoring 
body in that state, the RMS in, in New South Wales, for example. Correct. Whereas in Canberra, it's different, isn't it? Because the instructors actually have the authority to issue licenses to the students. How do you find that system works? We're under heavy scrutiny in the ACT for that very reason. Um, as a driving instructor, I'm accredited both in New South Wales and the ACT. So I have the benefit of being able to look at both systems. Uh, in the ACT, we do require extra training. There's extra modules that have to be completed outside of the standard cert for, for us to be able to do the assessing and, uh, and obviously provide the student, uh, provide the learner, sorry, with their provisional licence. Um, I, I actually really like the system in the ACT, Lockie, in that um, you, you build a good rapport with, with the student and uh, not, not only that, you time and focus on the key areas or you know key weaknesses in their driving and uh, what it does there I always like to describe it as milestones so there's a logbook with 23 competencies in it uh, and the student must be able to successfully demonstrate each competency um, to the instructor without any assistance um, and uh, once once the student's able to do that that particular competency is then stamped by the instructor's ACT government stamp and then, of course, they work their way throughout the logbook to the end result, where they get the um, where where they actually get their license. Uh, what we do find it is a little bit more thorough. So, if you go to do the license test with what we call um, Access Canberra in in the ACT, it's a forty-five minute driving test. It, it is easily, you know, you can fluke a driving test, be it New South Wales or ACT. Right time of day, you know, you do a good enough job. Um, essentially, you get your licence and off you go. We're with the logbook system in the ACT, when we're doing the competencies, they have to, say for instance, they'll be assessed on reverse parallel parking individually, but then there's two reviews. So they do a one to 17 review and then a one to 22 review. So the student actually has to show competence with that particular item three times in the logbook to then be able to get their licence. So in theory, um, it should actually produce a better result and we should have, have better drivers. And uh, uh, with that, of course, comes extra insurance obligations and, um, you know, then there's all uh, ACT government paperwork. We're heavily audited. So the ACT government can drop in any time they like, sit in the back of the car. And, uh, and then, of course, we're regulated that way. Um, New South Wales apparently is regulated and uh, we do, do have auditors in New South Wales, but... In the eight years I've been a New South Wales instructor, I've never seen one uh, Lockie where in the ACT we might see them, you know, six to ten times a year. So, yeah, it is a lot more regulated here in the ACT, but I think the results speak for themselves. You know, we have we have quite um, a low uh, fatality rate each year, so I know it's something that uh, that the ACT government is very proud of. Is it something then that you could see potentially being introduced in other states? I think Queensland um, and Victoria have something similar, Lockie. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely, I, I think so. The biggest thing is that, um, you know, the, the bigger you go with your states, like in New South Wales, it becomes harder to regulate it. And, um, you know, there's driving instructors running around in New South Wales, taking money off people who aren't even accredited driving instructors. So as part of that, they, most of them don't even have working with vulnerable people cards, but yet, uh, they're charging thirty or forty dollars for a driving lesson, and people are like, "Oh, that seems really reasonable." And uh, you know, of course, um, you, you'd always, as a parent, you'd always make sure that you'd want to make sure that your son or daughter is getting into the car with a reputable, 
uh, reputable driving instructor for sure, especially one that uh, passes police checks and has working with on people cards and those sorts of things. Now, something that you and I are both very passionate about is road safety. And I think you would agree, Daniel, that whether it's the ACT or New South Wales, the licensing process is very much based on the procedures of driving. So, you know, understanding that you have to stop at a stop sign and, and give way to give way sign and that, you know, when you're in a roundabout, you have to give way to cars that are already in the roundabout and keep left and less overtaking and don't go above the speed limit. And like you say, you have to know how to do a reverse parallel park and you have to know how to do a three-point turn. But what the licensing process doesn't focus on so much is the more, and I hesitate to use the word advanced, but things that actually can help you avoid crashing. So things like hazard perception, how to perform an emergency stop in a panic situation, how to perform an emergency swerve and avoid manoeuvre. Now, yeah. from your perspective, as somebody who offers training and tuition as part of the licensing process, but also offers that next level of defensive drive training, do you think that uh, defensive driving is something that should be part of the licensing process? I do, mate. Yeah, one, I 100% agree. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, we see, like, talking about reverse parallel parking, for example, um, in, in most states in Australia, the student is assessed on their ability to, to be able to do that particular manoeuvre. Um, and the, the issue I have with, with things like that is that if a student gets their licence based on being able to do a reverse parallel parking, for instance, that's a personal choice to do reverse parallel parking. So for the rest of their driving life, and let's face it, most people we see have a driving lifespan of about 60 years. And so we, we do see that throughout that time, a lot of people will choose never to do a reverse parallel park again. But at some point, and you know, you, you, you can attest to this, you're a, you're a driver that uses the roads every day, you're gonna have to do an emergency stop. But at no point, is there actually official training or assessment given on a person's ability to do an emergency stop? And particularly with the improvements in technology in things like ABS and active stability control and autonomous braking and all those sorts of things, people, um, people don't necessarily understand what it is to do an emergency stop. And they don't really fully appreciate the, um, uh, the factor of speed and we see that a lot. We do a demonstration for instance on our defensive driving course where we'll get a car to do an emergency stop at 60 kilometres an hour and then it'll do it at 80 kilometres an hour and you see with the extra 20 kilometres an hour it takes the vehicle double the distance to stop and it's really quite an eye-opener um, for people there and I, I really and that's something that uh, I speak constantly to the Transport Minister about in the ACT. I think he gets a bit sick of me, <laughs> to be honest. But uh, it's certainly something I'd like to see written into legislation that uh, the students do go on, that young learners do go on to do some advanced or you know, further defensive driver training. And a lot of people argue that it creates overconfidence and that it sets the, uh, it sets the wrong tone for the drivers going out onto the road. And that's where you have to have it yes, you can upskill a driver, but you have to remind them of um, the responsibility and the safe driving attitude that has to be coupled with those skills to be able to get a good result. Yeah, and my counter argument to that, Daniel, would be that 
young drivers who've just been issued with their driver's license, they're going to be overconfident anyway. You and I both remember what it was like to be 17 or 18 years old <laughs> and to want to impress our mates and our girlfriends by taking them out in our car and maybe driving a bit faster than it was safe to do so because it feels good. So young people by nature who've just been given their driver's license, if they're going to be overconfident anyway, then you might as well equip them with the skills to increase their chances of getting out of any trouble that they might find on the road. Yeah, spot on. And it, and it goes further than that as well, because what we see a lot with, um, with young drivers as well is vehicle choice comes into play. And uh, we, we hear it a lot from parents that, oh, you know, we've just bought them a car. We spent a couple of thousand dollars on it. And uh, we've told them if they, if they look after this car and they do a good job, then, you know, we'll spend a bit more on the next one and we'll, we'll get them something a, a little bit more expensive. The problem with, problem with that, of course, Lockie, is like you talk about being over to confidence, they are going to they are gonna do, they're, they're at a risk-taking part of their life. So they're going to do some risk-taking, some experimental stuff. Um, but then also, too, when they're on the road in a car, the recipe's all wrong there. We've taken our least experienced drivers and then just put them into the most inferior cars or, you know, the crappiest cars on the road, essentially. And so what it means then is that when they do make a mistake, the technology's not there to help them get out of trouble, but also the safety standards aren't in those cars to keep them better protected when they do have a car accident. And, uh, and we, we get a lot of parents who will attend our defensive driving courses just to watch their son or daughter. And especially, you know, you, you see a parent who's bought a 2005 Corolla and they think to themselves, that's a fantastic, that's a safe car, you know, it's a great starting point. And then they watch it, it doesn't have ABS, and they watch the difficulty that their son or daughter has trying to pull a car up without ABS, you know, versus someone um, driving, you know, a, a slightly newer car that does have ABS. And so it's good for, for the parents to even see uh, that, ec that extra risk factor in just by choosing, you know, a, a lower price car. So, yeah, there's lots of factors in there for sure. And I think, um, I think parents are a big part of that. They have to take some responsibility in there as well. Let's talk about the whole notion of safety features in cars as well, because in cars, there's basically two types of safety features. There's passive safety features, which are the things that minimise injury once you've crashed. So things like seatbelts and airbags. But then there's mm -hmm. also the active safety features, which are the things that are there to stop you crashing in the first place. So it could be as simple as having good tyres and good brakes, but like you say, it also includes things like ABS stability control. And more recently, we've seen things like lane keeping assist and autonomous emergency braking. And I bet that for a lot of motorists, the first time that they actually experience what those features feel like is when they're in an emergency situation on the road, which is not ideal. And again, it probably yeah. demonstrates the importance of having those defensive driving courses on a skid pan or, or somewhere similar where they can just get a feel for what those features are like. So the classic example is ABS, you know, the, the pulsing that you get through the brake pedal when you slam your foot down hard to do an emergency stop. If that happens to you on a public road when you're actually doing an emergency stop and you haven't felt it before, you're probably going to panic and think that something's wrong with your braking system when in fact, it's just the ABS modulating the force on the brake pedal to, to stop the brakes from locking up. So I think 
with more and more of these active safety features coming into cars, it's really important for drivers just to, to understand and to feel what it's like when those features kick in. Yeah, and it's funny you should say that because that's that's a lot of feedback that we get, um, particularly from from older drivers. Lucky we have uh, we have quite a few of uh, our drivers who are in their forties or fifties, uh, even in their sixties. They'll come and do a defensive driving course with us. They'll do an emergency stop, and I remember vividly a lady one day said to me uh, after doing the emergency stop, I walked over to the car to give her some feedback on it and, and have a chat about how she felt, and she said to me, Daniel. You know, I've actually heard that noise before and I felt that sensation before on the road and I actually thought mechanically something had broken in the vehicle and so I, I, I released the brake pedal and went on to run into the car <laughs> in front of me and have the accident. And she said, had I known, had I actually been out here, experienced this, understood how the technology had worked, I would have just kept the pressure on the brake pedal the whole time. So, yeah, it is, it is really just about... Uh, experiencing those uh, those uh, aids that are in the car and using that technology to full effect. Unfortunately, humans, you know, uh, I, I can't see the human race ever being more disciplined in a hurry with their driving and, and things like that. So we have to have those mechanical aids um, in the car and have that technology in the car. And of course, the other one is uh, active stability control. And it's quite an eye opener for people when you put them onto a skid pan and you turn the active stability control off, Lockie, which of course we did for you in your Commodore that day. Yeah, and yeah. You, you go around and you realize, wow, it's, it's just me, the steering wheel and the pedals. It's me that has control over this whole environment. But then when you turn the stability control back on and you go to do the same thing, you know, you come into the corner too fast and the car understeers and the stability control takes over and actually adds some assistance to the driver and same if the vehicle oversteers, People are astounded just how much input that technology has. And it kind of gives them that sense that, you know, there's another level of respect there. Not so much to then be overconfident and go out and drive too fast on the road, but it's always good to know in the back of your mind those safety features are there. And it then, furthermore, it helps them influence the type of cars that they're going to buy in the future as well. So let's talk about motorsport then and the connection between motorsport and road safety. So we've already talked about the fact that young drivers are overrepresented in car crashes. And a big part of that is because young drivers are typically overconfident and they like taking risks because driving fast feels good because of the adrenaline rush that you get. So the argument here is that motorsport participation provides an environment where drivers can get that adrenaline rush, but they can get it in a controlled environment where they're not putting people's lives at risk. So is participating in motorsport something that you encourage your more enthusiastic students to do? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And even, um, you know, there's, when we talk about motorsport, you know, quite often there's the, the, um, the idea that any, any form of motorsport is going to send you broke. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Um, you, you know, you've got you've got hill climbs, which are obviously easy to to become a part of. And uh, locally, I went out to um, earlier on in the year. I actually went out to the local hill climb, and what I saw, I remember seeing a young girl. She was um, 15 years of age, and she was you know building around the hill climb circuit 
in an old 1980s model Ford Laser, you know, and uh, standing on the outside looking in, it, it was extremely slow. Um, and uh, watching from the outside of the car, obviously, it looks really boring. But for her on the inside of the car, uh, I, I'm 100% certain she was having an absolute ball. And I think that that sets the tone. I, I, we, we work, you know, with a little bit with the youth and, you know, PCYC and things like that. And even getting them to a racetrack gets them excited but it also like you're saying Lockie, it just it shows them that there's an avenue to go and satisfy that appetite without doing it on the roads and just giving people the alternative and showing them the alternative there's so much risk involved with doing it on the road where and i often like to remind people if you go to do motor racing uh, and you go to do motorsport when you're behind another car, the understanding is that the car in front of you is going to be accelerating as quickly from as quickly as it can from one corner to the next. So you're able to push your, you know, your throttle to 100%, knowing that that agreement's there. You know that that person is going to do that. Unfortunately, when you come on to the public street, we've got so many varying skill levels and other hazards and things, and it's really just not the place for it. And it is one of the challenges, just getting the the youth of today to to understand that. And I think the other thing that, that makes it hard, Lockie, is that we see more and more circuits closing down. You know, you look at Sydney, they've lost so many tracks over the years where people used to go. And I really commend um, the Victorian government. I know that um, they were doing the Friday night drags, I, I believe it was, and they had uh, the police in there and they brought the youth in with cars and they were able to, you know, to, to drag race one another at Calder Park. and. What it did, it sort of broke down the walls, I think, or just closed the divide between the youth and the authorities being the police. And what it, what it turned out to be was just a bunch of people uh, who were all car enthusiasts standing around having a chat. And um, it, it gave them the opportunity to look at things from both sides of the fence. And I think we need to see more of that for sure. I think the other thing that motorsport participation gives you is the ability to process a lot of information at once and react accordingly. So I know from my personal experience of racing in the 24 hours of lemons a few years ago where you had the circuit absolutely jam-packed with cars travelling at all different speeds and, and you really had to, to have your awareness capability set to absolute maximum at all times. Just For sure. training your brain to be able to anticipate and then to be able to react accordingly to what's happening. Um, yeah. I think that, that sort of awareness is something that can then have safety benefits on public roads as well, where obviously everything's happening a lot more slowly than it is on a racetrack. Yeah, you're right. It, it really benefits observation. I mean, um, drawing parallels myself with my own motorsport, um, you're 100% right. What it teaches you to do, and as a driver, you know, once you're exiting the corner, you're at the apex, you're looking for the exit and then beyond that you're looking to the next corner and so for you as a driver you're actually processing the information between where you are and the next corner um, and that's where I think you can draw those parallels to the public street and one of the things we talk about uh, with the young drivers on the public street is the vanishing point where you know simply explained it's where we can't see the road anymore and and a driver should always be cycling their vision from their bonnet to the vanishing point and back again and like you said it's just having your observation as good as it can be to then be able to deal with whatever challenges you face and so there's definitely 
a lot of similarities there in the way in which we drive on the racetrack, not in terms of its speed and our aggressiveness, but more so our hazard perception and our awareness that can definitely be transferred directly to road skills. And that's where you see a lot of it. You know, Lockie, the most common type of accident is a nose to tail accident. It makes up for 39% or something ridiculous of, uh, you know, motor vehicle accidents. And it's because people, A, aren't leaving enough space, but like you said, B, just not looking far enough ahead to, to be able to observe what is changing in front of them. No, I think a big part of that as well, Daniel, is the distraction element too. So I know that it's something that the governments and regulators, to their credit, are cracking down on, but people not being fully engaged with the process of driving because they're too busy fiddling around with the phone or with the car audio mm. system or, you know, talking to passengers in the car or um, various other things that are taking their attention away from what they should be focusing on, which is driving. That's right. That's right. And we do see that. Um, and it's good to see the ACT government sort of follow suit a little bit with New South Wales comes into, you know, with our P1 and P2 drivers, zero use of the mobile phone inside the car. And I think that's super critical. But then also, like you said, passengers, we're now seeing those passenger restrictions, um, you know, for instance, from, uh, I believe it's 11 p.m. to sort of 5 a.m. And, and things. So reducing that, that risk there, um, it has its pros and cons, um, but obviously taking that element away. But even as a you know, as a mother or a father, we're just as high risk in the car, you know, when we've got the kids in the back seat and World War is erupting <laughs> in the back seat. That that's a distraction in itself. So you don't necessarily have to be a young person to be distracted by a passenger. I think it can certainly happen at all ages and something we all need to have a look at for sure. And it's what I guess what it really boils down to, like we were saying before, is just always giving ten out of ten and staying focused to the task of driving, like you said. So with the motorsport and road safety link, do you think it would be worth doing a study to see if people who participate in motorsport are less likely to be involved in car crashes on the road? Because to my knowledge, no study like this has ever been done. But if you were to do it, and realistically, it probably would be quite a time-consuming thing to undertake. But if the results demonstrated that people who participate in motorsport are less likely to be involved in car crashes, wouldn't that then give um, racing circuits and motorsport event promoters some ammunition to go to the government and say, hey, what we're doing is good for road safety and we've got the evidence to back it up and therefore you should be investing in what we're doing? Yeah, and the, the same thing for advanced or um, defensive driver training as well. There's a lot of naysayers who who come out and say there's no direct correlation or direct link to, to prove that it, um, that it actually assisted a driver or in improved road statistics, which I, I tend to disagree with a little bit. One of the things that we do as a, as a company is, you know, post-contact with your, with your customers is really important. And we have a lot of returning customers. So we might have, you know, a mother come through who uh, their first son learns with us, they get their license with us, then they go on to do a defensive driving course, then they go on to do an advanced driving course. And then um, child number two comes along. And it's at that point, child number two comes along, we get to say, look, how's child number one going? And that's where mum will say, oh, well, actually, you know, this happened the other day, and he was able to get himself out of trouble. Or even parents will come to us and say, oh, look, 
whatever you worked on in that course was brilliant. Their observation is better. Their discipline is better. And one of the biggest things that we see is their following distances become massively improved. They really strictly stick to that three-second following rule because they've seen the evidence of how hard it is to stop a car and what it takes to stop a car. So seeing that evidence firsthand actually changes their attitude and their approach to the driving. Um, but like you said, to do a study on it, geez, it would be really, really tough. But I would certainly, I would love to do it and certainly see the results and be able to, to provide that to the relevant authorities so that they can see it for themselves. Definitely think that it would be something worth doing. Looking at yourself and your business, so fifth gear motoring, it's increased quite significantly in size since you took it over in late 2014. Moving forward, what are the plans? Do you have any further expansion plans? Where are you? What direction are you aiming to take it in? Yeah, we're sort of um, we're sort of at a stage now where um, the growth is such in the business that uh, we need to perhaps have a look at a uh, a bit of a restructure in the business. Start to bring in, I, I think you know, a, a business development manager. One of the things about running the business. Uh, myself with my wife is uh, I don't get to do as much in-car training as I used to and uh, that's certainly something that I miss um, but then you know we've uh, we've been able to align ourselves now with uh, with some really reputable um, RTOs who are always looking to advance their presence in the industry and offer more courses we've designed and developed more courses um, more recently in the last few years, obviously our relationship has very much expanded and grown with Wakefield Park and uh, to the point where we're running um, beginner driver courses, uh, as you know, at Wakefield Park now, which is great because we see a lot of the young drivers with high anxiety. So to, to be able to have Wakefield Park come on board and offer their facility for us to be able to do that and run defensive driving courses and things up there has just been incredible. It, it, it really puts them in a new light, um, but it also opens up uh, a broader customer base for us, meaning we can bring people from the coast and Goulburn and you know um, surrounding areas of Goulburn, Yass, things like that. Um, so we'll, we'll continue to grow. Obviously, we're, our um, defensive driving has become really popular in the corporate sector. Um, in, here in the ACT, both sort of private and uh, and also in the government, we've had a big increase in that. So, yeah, continuing to to grow on those. Um, looking at at things, you know, we've had year on year, we've had about a fifteen percent growth, and uh, I'm I'm hoping we'll be able to continue that for the next couple of years to to even become a little bit bigger still. The fact that there's increased investment for for uh, defensive driver training from corporate and government is sort of a, a sign that it must work, isn't it? Because they wouldn't be spending money on it if they didn't say the benefits of it. Yeah, and you know, one of the really cool ones we, we've, we've had in the last couple of years has been, um, uh, it was actually the deep space tracking station here in, in Canberra, and uh, which we're a big part of, you know, the lunar landing and all that sort of stuff, very proud heritage there. Um, and it was really cool, actually, Lockie, because when I was doing all the correspondence and the invoicing and the mapping out of the program for them, it was, uh, you know, you're getting signature blocks <laughs> on the bottom of the emails saying NASA. And I thought that was pretty cool. But um, but locally, we see that with the ACT government. You know, more recently, we've had um, uh, sectors like domestic animal services have come out. We've had rangers come out. 
Um, we've had CSIRO um, and also private contractors that are out doing electrical stuff or they're going to remote locations looking at communications towers and things. And a lot of that is because uh, there's driving on dirt roads and, um, and also driving vehicles with you know, large canopies and large amounts of weight and just more so giving the drivers um, and, and employees a bit of an understanding of the vehicle that they're driving and, and the challenges and the risks that they face. So I, I think, I think um, there, there is some positiveness there coming from the different government departments that are definitely seeing the worth within that uh, further driver training for their employees. And it comes back, I guess, to a little bit of safety obligation towards their staff for sure. And I think especially with the ACT now, and uh, we're seeing a little bit with you know New South Wales as well, we've had people coming up from the coast, organisations coming up from the South Coast and stuff. I think they are, you know, all, at a point starting to take the, the road safety training a bit more seriously. And for yourself on the racing side of things, what are your plans this year? It's obviously been a disrupted year in terms of the motorsport calendar due to COVID-19. And I know that you've got a Mitsubishi Evo sitting there that you had plans to run in the Bathurst six hours. So will we see that back on track in 2021? Oh, absolutely, mate. Yeah, we're all... We're all itching to uh, to get back to the racetrack. There's no doubt about it. Um, we we've had mixed success, obviously with the with the HSV. Um, as you know, we we won up there in 2015, uh, 2016 we finished fourth in class, 2017 we were second in class, and then unfortunately the last two years we've had a couple of weird mechanical failures that have put us out. But uh, new challenge, yeah. So we've we've got a. a Evo 8 um, Mitsubishi Lancer, which uh, it's different discipline, obviously driving the, the HSV to the Evo. Um, you know, we've transferred all the dry brake and everything across to the other car. Initial testing so far looks, looks quite good. Um, understanding how the car works on the MRF tyre. And um, we'll be looking to certainly do some sprint rounds in the production cars, doing a little bit with the Thunder Sports, um, with the HSV, and we've also Obviously, now I've got the Nissan 180SX with the 5.7 in it. Um, so, yeah, looking to definitely looking at a full racing calendar for next year just to get back out and get back on the track and, yeah, with the appetite again. And even for the family, you know, the, the kids and Melissa, we love to go away and do those things. So when, you, when it's all sort of stopped like it did, it's not just you that's directly affected. There's a lot of others in the background that look forward to the break and getting away. So, yeah, hope, hope to see more of that next year for sure. And I'm sure we'll see you back at the Wakefield 300 early in the new year as well. Yeah, the question is what, what car to run. So <laughs> <laughs> that'll be made over the summer break. We've, um, I, I guess we're lucky. We've got, I've actually got five race cars now and, uh, you know, they're used in the business. People get to come and drive them and uh, we get to do that one-on-one -on -one training with them at Wakefield. So, um, yeah, what, watch this space. I'm not sure yet. Got to pick a co-driver and, and uh, pick a car, but uh, we'll see, mate. We'll see what, uh, what the Christmas break brings. All right, well, we're almost done here on the podcast, but uh, one of the things we always do with all of our podcast guests is a segment called Checkered Flag Choices. And the way it works is it's, um, it's a bit like speed dating. So I ask you five questions and you answer them as succinctly as you can. So question number one, what is your favourite holiday destination? Oh, um, 
Bathurst each year for the six hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good choice. Who are three people you would invite to dinner? Ah, yes. Uh, Peter Brock. Would love to, definitely love to have uh, dinner with Peter Brock. Big idol of mine um, growing up. Uh, the Dalai Lama. Love to have him over for dinner. I think that'd be really cool. And uh, I better put my wife in there, Lachlan. I'm my wife, Melissa, for sure. Every <laughs> opportunity, i love to go out to dinner with her. <laughs> yeah, that makes sure you stay in the good books, that's for sure. Exactly. Question number three, what's your dream car? Oh, yeah, this one changed over time. Um, my, my dream car growing up was, uh, was a Lamborghini Contash. Always wanted a Lamborghini Contash. But then more recently, I've actually, um, I've actually become really fond of the, the uh, VF LSAs. And it's a little bit of a fall from grace. But um, I think given the demise of Holden, I think that would be a fantastic car to have in the, the garage. 100%. Question number four, what's the best advice you've been given about motorsport? Oh, this is a good one. And uh, th this one actually came from two, two people, very similar advice. Uh, I, I was lucky to w work alongside some really good battlers in motorsport, being one of them being Gary Wilmington, and of course the other um, being Bill Cedars, working for both of those guys. And the, the advice that they instilled in me was make the most of what you've got, but also to never think you know everything because the moment that you actually think you do know everything will be the moment that you stop learning. I love it. And question number five, who is the racing driver that you respect the most? De definitely, on a, on a personal note, idolised, obviously, Peter Brock growing up. Um, but in, in recent years, uh, Alex Zanardi, I think that guy is just absolutely incredible, what he's had to face and what he's had to go through. And the fact that, you know, he can come back and be ultra competitive using hand controls, knowing how difficult they are to drive with. Um, yeah, it has to be, has to be Alex Zanardi recently. I agree with you on that, even more so since I've driven your hand control car because <laughs> um, that was at very low speed around Wakefield Park. So imagining somebody being able to drive a race car and actually win races with hand controls is, uh, is pretty right. incredible. And I think just the final question in wrapping up, what advice do you have for people to keep themselves safe on the road? Uh, just a couple of points I'll throw in there, Lockie. One, know, know your vehicle. Take, take some time to actually have a look around your vehicle. First of all, understand, understand your vehicle. Know, you know the maintenance schedule, the, the things like the tyres, how, how well the vehicle is maintained. Um, but then also, too, don't, don't take risks. You know, it's, um, I, I often get challenged with this. We talk about the three-second following rule and I had a woman say to me the other day, but if I leave three seconds, a car's going to fill it. And I said to her, so on, on the way to work, you let 20 cars in. And if we do 20 multiplied by three, it's one minute. Are we that time poor in our lives that we can't afford to get to work one minute later, you know? So I think it's really just taking a bit more time and uh, not taking risks and being a bit more respectful. Well, Daniel, you've certainly given us some fascinating insights into not just motorsport, but um, the wider road safety picture. So uh, thank you very much for your time. And uh, we do appreciate you being part of this episode of Checkered Flag Chat.
Yeah, thank you, Lockie. And uh, mate, thank you for having me. That, it, it's been fantastic and really honoured, uh, really honoured to be on here with you today. A big thank you to Daniel Flanagan for taking some time out of his busy schedule to join me here on Check and Flag Chat. For the public perception of the motorsport industry, it's so valuable to have someone like Daniel promoting its benefits from a road safety perspective. I think the biggest takeaway points from our chat are, number one, that it's important to understand the safety features of your car before an emergency happens. Know what they feel like in a controlled environment so that they don't catch you by surprise when you're on the road. And number two, there's nothing wrong with the adrenaline rush of driving fast and pushing the limits, but do it on a racetrack, not on a public road where you're risking people's lives. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of Checkered Flag Chat. Make sure you subscribe, and if you feel like it, drop us a review. I'm Lockie Madsall. Thanks for listening.